You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Okay. Well, that means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. Are we actually making any sound here? I cannot, I don't see anything. Okay. Uh, let's see what's going on here. Is that making a difference? No. Tune my body and my brain to the music from the land. Inch by inch, row by row, oh, to make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hole. That means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. We can't tell whether we're making any noise here. Uh, so we're going to do a quick technical check and see what the problem is with the soundboard here. Uh, so at the moment, I don't know if anybody out there is hearing me or not, but we're going to be double-checking to see what the problem is. Okay, we're going to double check that now. We're not sure whether we're actually broadcasting. We can't hear ourselves over the uh, speakers, over the headphones, so it's difficult to tell. Okay, okay. they right. can hear us. All right, so we're broadcasting. They we can, can hear us out there, but okay. we can't hear us in here. All right, welcome to the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore, and that's Lois Richter, and uh, hopefully we're at a sufficient volume here and everything because the boards are all woggly here. But, <laughs> <laughs> it's a new technical term for Happy 2019, a woggly year. board. Welcome yeah. to the Davis Garden Show. This is Don. This is Lois. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, bright, sunny Davis day, and the days are getting longer. Don, I am so happy. So the weather is actually interesting. Uh, we've had some interesting weather for the last few days. We have now had the two coldest mornings of the year, uh, yesterday and today. Today's date, by the way, is? Uh, January 3rd. Very good, 2019. <laughs> I was a guess. The temperature this morning was 28 degrees, and the temperature yesterday morning was 28 degrees. At your we place, had, at my place, uh, it was a little well, warmer. Well, actually, that was the official Davis Weather Station. Yeah. So, um, yeah, people in town, obviously, the official Davis Weather Station for Davis residents is out west of town, out in the open. So probably a little colder than... Um, than we experienced, or, or than you experienced. Yes, I, cer I, certainly I, got that. I certainly got that gold, yeah. Right. Well, you, you're quite a ways away from us. I got some begonias on my front porch that don't look so good. Oops. So it, first it went down two days ago, January 2nd, early in the morning, to about 29 degrees at uh, 1 a.m., and stayed 29, 28 for a few hours until, of course, sunrise, and then things warmed up. So that was several hours below freezing. But again, 28 degrees, which is enough to kill the things that we expected to be killed. 
and the things that I should have brought in, like these three very sad begonias on my front porch, which are now inside a day late. Uh, but it didn't do any significant damage out in the in the even out in my property out in the open. The citrus are fine. Twenty eight degrees is not going to do any harm to things that we consider hardy in this climate zone. And then this morning, same thing. At about eleven p.m., it was already freezing, but it dropped down to about twenty eight, and then warmer air pushed in, and actually, it uh, didn't get as cold for as long on this morning, January third. We're going to change rather dramatically. The weather service tells us, uh, and if you look at the radar, you'll really see what going on out there. Nice long stream of wet weather heading across the Pacific straight towards us and uh, we're going to get uh, three in a row it looks like. Uh, significant changes is the way they put it. A Pacific frontal band will push into Northern California by Saturday. Lots of wind on Saturday, lots of rain, and that one's cold. Snow levels will drop to about three to 4,000 feet or below. And even the coast range passes like Highway 299 near Redding could see significant snowfall. So they have a winter storm watch up there in the northern part of the valley. And that one's coming in and gives us a fair bit of rain down here and a fair bit of snow up there. And then the next one comes but, in. But there's no freezing it with that. No, it'll be nice and warm, relatively speaking, from yeah. our standpoint. It will barely get down below uh, 40, actually. So we'll, we'll, it'll be balmy here. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, that'll be the story next week, they say, as a series of disturbances pass over the region. The different models show different timing. So Monday could be Tuesday. And again, rain on Wednesday, another day of wet weather with another cold front. One of those is warmer. The first, the, the first one's cold. Second one's warmer. The third one's cold again. None of them freezing, but uh, snow levels dropping. Which is good in some ways because here's where we stand. Well, that, that affects our water in the spring, doesn't yep. it? Yep. Well, not ours necessarily, but some a lot of places, yeah. Uh, January weather in the Sacramento Valley. Our high temperatures typically go up from 55 to 59, rarely below 47 or above 66. So that's for you who live in other areas to know what it's like here. The daily low temperatures go up by a couple degrees in the course of the month. Usually we're around 39 so 2830 was below average, obviously. Rarely falls below 31, but it does. Not, not unheard of, of course, and it did. And average rainfall in the month of January is 3.8 inches. Just for you, I've noted the day length increases by about 10 minutes a week. Yay! With sunset going from about 5 p.m. day before yesterday to about 5.30 p.m. at the end of the month. And uh, this is an interesting one. The definitions of the growing season vary throughout the year. Uh, throughout the world, excuse me. But for the purposes of this site, weatherspark.com, they define it as the longest continuous period of non-freezing temperatures in the year, which the growing season in Davis, California, is typically 325 days from around January 23rd to around December 14th, rarely starting after February 25th, rarely ending before November 19th. So we're just a couple weeks away. From the from growing spring. season. <laughs> the growing season. <laughs> One of my friends in Santa Barbara sent me a picture of a Home Depot down there that had tomato plants out oh, on good display. Grief. Now, bear in mind, Santa Barbara. I mean, my dad would always plant his tomatoes in La Jolla in January, just, I think, primarily so he could call me and say, well, well done. Tomatoes. Just planted my tomatoes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, just so you know, we could use these storms. The snow depth in the central Sierra is below average. It's at about 70 to 90% of average in the central Sierra. At the lower elevations, it's much below average at the higher elevations, only about 50 to 70% of average. And that is where a lot of the state's water supply comes from. Snow levels are significantly lower in the northern Sierra, but they get closer to normal as you get it into the Cascades. So uh, we could use the rain. 
The cold is okay, and one of the reasons the cold is okay is that our chilling hours, I wrote them down here because we want to update you fruit tree growers. Chilling hours to date, 367 in Davis and Woodland. Not a meaningful number until I explain it a little bit more. 392 in winters. That's at the lower end of normal. So, chilling hours, number of hours between 32 and 45 degrees, deciduous fruit species need in order to go into and then come out of dormancy, flower properly, and set fruit. If they don't get enough chilling, they don't set fruit properly. Uh, and we are generally, we generally run around 800, 850 chilling hours here. If we continue at the rate they've been accumulating this season, we'll be around 750, 775. Plenty for all the types of things we grow here, but lower end of the normal range over the last 30 years. The newer model that we mentioned periodically, chilling portions, which reflects the spikes of high temperature that undo chilling hours is the way I like to put it. When we have warm spells in January, that kind of undoes some of those chilling hours. It reduces the plant's ability to properly come out of dormancy. We're at about 36 to 37 for most of the local stations. That's, again, only a meaningful number if you know what plants need. They mostly need about 30 to 75 chilling portions with most things that you're thinking of like peaches, nectarines in the 50 to 60 range. Almonds have probably already gotten what they need, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, peaches and nectarines, mm, half to two-thirds of the way there. So we're on track to have normal winter chilling for all of these types of fruit trees that we grow. Having said that, a few years ago, 2015, I think it was, big spike of warm temperatures in January. Everything came through except the cherries, and the cherry crop statewide was off by half because of mm -hmm. several days of unusually warm weather in the 70s in January, essentially undoing the chilling that they had needed. So, again, over the years, we've gone from one model to another in terms of what, we're, what they're measuring and accumulating. If you're interested in this and you're concerned about the impact of climate change and you're thinking about different fruit trees and how that might be affected, let's say you're you know, writing a paper on the subject, IPM ucdavis.edu, as usual, the site we always refer you to, they show you the accumulation there, and they have a great description of the different chilling hours and chilling portions models and how to compare them. Well, the problem we have, I keep telling you about chilling portions, but we don't have the data for all the different kinds of varieties that you want to grow or I want because to grow. Because chilling portions is a new model. Yeah. The, you can find the information for Chandler walnuts and for several varieties of peaches that I've never heard of because they're commercial varieties. I'm not the ones you're selling for your back. I'm selling for your backyard. But I don't have the data for, you know, uh, June glow nectarine because they haven't really figured it out for that. Mm -hmm. I do know from one researcher in that field that she believes you can still use chilling hours, as she puts it, as a proxy for chilling portions. Mm -hmm. In other words, we tell you we got 800, 850 chilling hours here. The label of the fruit trees, which have arrived at my nursery, says 600 hours. You're fine. Mm -hmm. You're getting enough. And that's what that means when you look on the label. Okay, so a question for you. If you had, like we did in 2015, that spike of 70-degree weather in January, and yeah. then it went back to normal. Yeah, it did. So it was, it was cool again. Well, at what point, at how late in the season, would that spike simply break dormancy, trigger them to start early, and be off. Yeah, that would be an issue with low chill varieties in places with late frost. And you would want to avoid, you know, when you're going to a garden center, my, my fruit trees all arrived last week, 
by the way, earliest I've ever gotten them. We've got them all lined out. There's all these labels on them, and the labels have a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Read the label when you buy them. And <laughs> Read the, the label everywhere. <laughs> that would really be a good plan, yeah, yes. Yeah. And re- reading the label on the fruit tree and then asking the highly trained uh, nursery professional at the you know the grocery store where you're buying them. <laughs> said, no, come on down. I, I, all right. I went down visiting my mom a few years ago, and there's a grocery store near them in La Jolla, California. La Jolla averages 50 chilling hours in a good year. 50. Okay, I, I track it because there's actually a weather station right nearby there at Torrey Pines. Uh, and so they, that's not enough for much of anything. Mm-hmm. And I was there in the winter at one time in January, and out front of the Whole Foods market was a display of bare root fruit trees for people to buy to take home and plant. And they had Bing cherry. That needs 800 chilling hours. They had red delicious apple. That needs several hundred chilling hours. There's no place within 100 miles of here where they get enough chilling. Well, that's not quite true. Maybe up in the mountains of Julian, you know, 60 miles east, um, that they would get enough chilling hours for these varieties that they were selling. But people were picking them out and taking them in and buying them. They were already budding out. They were doing exactly mm-hmm. what you're describing. They're already budding out and getting ready to grow in January because it was, you know, 70 degrees in La Jolla in the middle of the winter. So, yes, read the label. Ask the highly trained personnel at the Whole Foods grocery store if the fruit tree you're about to buy will do well here. The answer would be no. Well, they Uh, wouldn't know that. They wouldn't know that. And whoever chose that particular display for that particular grocery store just didn't know where they were going, I guess. Uh, The label will tell you. And then all you need to know is what are your average chilling hours in your area? Mm -hmm. Well, good news is if you go to IPM, .ucdavis.edu and look at their weather, um, what do they call it? their weather features, you'll find a thing about chilling hours. They have data for quite a number of weather stations right. all over California. So you can go, oh, I'm in Berkeley. Well, here's the nearest one. Ooh, looks like I better pick a variety that only needs a couple hundred chilling right. hours. And if you take that one and you plant it in a place where it warms up early and then you have late frosts, pretty good chance your flowers will be killed. Yeah. And that'll be a totally separate issue than whether it got enough chilling hours. It broke dormancy too early. So you want to get ones with chilling hours appropriate to your region. We don't mind selling low-chill peaches here because they don't break dormancy. We don't have those spikes of warm temperature that Usually. commonly. Yeah, and maybe we will more and more as time goes by, but generally it hasn't been a problem. So I'm happy to sell you a Red Baron peach, which only needs 250 chilling hours. It grows great here. Flower is great. Excellent fruit. You know, uh, 50 years from now, maybe one of the only varieties we're selling in this area. Uh, but uh, for now, it's a suitable one here. There are places where that question that you asked matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Places in Texas and, and others where they, they warm up and then they get cold again. And they know that. You know, If you move to those places, probably the local nursery people and farmers yeah. can tell you. Um, so for, for those who are listening, if you maybe you're new and you realize that we're in Davis, California. Yep. That's a lovely place to be. And we are recommending going to a thing and the website says UC Davis. Well, I want you to understand that the IPM site here is simply housed at UC Davis. The website is here. Right. The data is from all over the state. This is a statewide thing, not just a Davis thing. I just handed you something you sent me. Yes, a, uh, an I did. announcement, our arboretum announcement for this month, this week, this this day. Probably for a few more times. (laughs) Well, there's a a special that came out in the Enterprise. And so if you want to read the entire article, you can go to the Davis Enterprise website and read it there. Um, And it says, apply now to be an Arboretum volunteer. Now, I've been a volunteer at the Arboretum for, oh, well, let's say over (laughs) 30 years. I won't have. 20 years at least. A long time. A long time. Anyway, um, so I'm what's called a docent, and I lead tours and do things like that. And, in fact, I'll tell you one of our announcements will be of the tour that's coming up. Um, But 
Apply now if you want to be in our breed and volunteer. Space is limited. Applications are due on Friday, January 18th, my birthday. Email completed applications to arboretum at ucdavis.edu. Download the application from... Uh, questions, contact the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Gardens headquarters at 530-752-4880 okay. or arboretum at ucdavis.edu. Would you like to spend more time outdoors? Would you like to learn more about the environment? Are you looking for a way to fulfill some New Year's resolution to give back to your community? Consider volunteering with the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. It's a rewarding place to spend your time while learning new skills and meeting new people. The Arboretum is seeking new volunteers to join its gardening plant sale support, and land stewardship volunteer teams. Trainings will be offered this winter and include a combination of expert instruction and hands-on projects. There's a $20 materials fee um, when you get your first training session. So what are the teams? The garden volunteers work in teams on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Friday mornings to help maintain and beautify. Um, you know, I'm going to read the whole thing. That's, that's not what that's, are the that's too teams? much. What so are we've got the teams, the garden volunteers. Yep. Wonderful. Plant sales support volunteers. Now, these is where you're, you're actually growing the plants and then helping out at the sale. You can do any of those things. Tolerance for pandemonium appreciated. Well, but you don't, I mean, if you want to do, if you want to be the one who waters the plants in the summer when it's 100 degrees, that's... They really that's, need that, yes. They really need that, yeah. 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 But it's a sh in a shade place. It's yeah. not that hard. I've done it for a while. And then the land stewardship volunteers. Now, this was this is a new yeah. team here. Land stewardship volunteers work on campus naturalized land with staff on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday mornings. Projects include light construction trail repair, native plant care, weed control, and a variety of equipment and power tool operations. Mm -hmm. And then the final team is the Pewter Creek Riparian Reserve of Volunteers. And that uh, reserve is a, is a place out there. Nearby. Go and read the article. Yep. Okay. Again, to get more information or to sign up, Contact Arboretum at ucdavis.edu or go to the website and click on that link and get down on your application. All right. So that's uh, if you want to become an Arboretum docent in any of those different categories. Arboretum uh, volunteer. Arboretum volunteer. Yes. Thank you. That's the different is the docents lead tours. Right. Which you and will be doing. Which Great I will segue. Be. <laughs> Great segue. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, at the Arboretum, I will be doing two tours about birds. And okay. this is, uh, the, it's called... Winter Birds in the Inside Scoop, and that is Saturday morning at 10 a.m., and that one is a slideshow and presentation. It's in the library at the headquarters building there, uh, a small place, so if you want to come, make sure you get there early enough to get a seat. And then Sunday at 10, I will have the same information in my head, but instead of being triggered by the slide that comes up next on the slideshow, we'll go wandering around outside, we'll see a bird, and I'll you tell know. you about it. Which Saturday? This is Saturday the 12th and Sunday okay. the 13th, so both gonna, at 10 a.m. You're going to get wet. I am, you're and that's okay. You'll do it I anyway. don't mind. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, and Birds if you like want, rain. if you well, the 12th, the Saturday is inside, so it doesn't matter. Right. And then I'm also doing a similar presentation, slightly shortened, for the Davis Senior Center, and that will be this week on Tuesday at 1 o'clock at the Davis Senior Center. That's January 8th. This week being uh, this January week. 8th, yes. January 8th. Yes, next week. Okay. Next week, this week, depending on how you use the words this or next. 
Well, this is Thursday, and we're going to be back <laughs> so on Thursday. Week. And between now and when we come back, I'm going to do that program. So the city of Davis would like some input. This is a local thing, but you folks in other areas might be interested to know that in the city of Davis, you can put leaves and prunings in the street in piles, and they come around with this giant claw machine that picks them up and takes them away. This phenomenon amazes people who are new to the Davis area. <laughs> I think Woodland also does it, and there may be a few other cities out there, but I'm pretty sure we're some of the very one, very few that do. And uh, there's been a lot of debate about this process because they're putting the stuff out in the street, and this is a fairly it, expensive machine, So, but it's a great service for gardeners. And, and I've what heard, do they do with the stuff? They, oh, they take it away, and hopefully they compost they it compost somewhere. They compost it, yes. And theory. then you can get the compost to put back in your yard you if you want try. to. You can try. They dump it down at the, that garden down the street from here, and it's gone in a day. But you can, oh, yeah. you can go yeah. get well, it. You can watch it. People are obviously <laughs> getting it. They're using it, yes. Yep, people uh, are using so it. So the question is, has been, the bike people in town don't like this because it tends to get into bike paths and some people think it's very odd looking they move here and they go why are people putting all this stuff in the street they are discussing reducing the number of times the claw is used to pick up residential yard waste and they would like your input on this i can tell you as a nursery owner talking to lots of gardeners i have heard more pushback on this topic than almost anything I can think of. Mm-hmm. Now, bear in mind, I talk to self-selected sampling of people who garden. People who complain to Don. People who garden and yeah. complain to Don. Yes, it's a subset. The Venn, diagra- the Venn diagram subset. of overlap there is, is fairly small. But boy, they are vigorous about it. So they would like your feedback. If you're one of those people who has a strong opinion about it, you're encouraged to attend an open, attend an open house on Monday, January 7th to provide that feedback. The things you've been saying to me, go say them to the city staff on whether the use of the claw should be reduced. Got that? From the current 18 times a year to monthly or somewhere in between. You can weigh in on the whole yard waste collection program, which is also known as Loose in the Streets, L-I-T-S as a whole. You can also, of course, send them your feedback or you can see your local council person at the grocery store and bend his or her ear on the subject. But the open house will be 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the Veterans Memorial Center Game Room, which is on 14th Street, and then they'll present the results of that to the city council on February 5th when the council will be considering. Currently, they do 18 pickups per year. They do mostly January to September, week monthly from January to September, weekly from mid-October to mid-December because of all the leaves. We have a lot of big trees here. And they're talking about reducing that because they need mm-hmm. to buy a new machine and they're expensive. They operate two claws and I think they want to try and have to not replace one of them or something like that. Yeah. Um, the feedback I'm getting, just to tell you, and I've passed this along on your behalf to at least two council members, so is that the leaf pickup season is needs to be extended through December. I've got a giant mm-hmm. sycamore tree. Lots of you have giant sycamore trees. I just raked up my last leaves this weekend. Right. They don't fall down in November. They go all the way through December. But also branch pickup for winter pruning should probably be weekly, January to February, uh, because that's when heavy pruning is done on deciduous fruit trees and things mm-hmm. like that. We want people to grow fruit trees. And cutting those branches down into the funny big plastic dumpster they gave you is not practical, to put it mildly. So that is where, if they're going to compromise, I would increase the usage during the leaf drop in through December, increase pickup in January and into early February. Maybe they could scale it back other times of year if that's part of a compromise for other folks. But people with big mature, you know, I I want to encourage you all anywhere you're listening to recycle your leaves compost them if you can just spread them out let them compost themselves naturally rake them off of the lawn and spread them out under shrubbery whatever you want to do to put them back in the soil that's the best thing to do Mm -hmm. having said that if you're on an eighth acre lot with a giant sycamore tree 
that's a lot of leaves. That you would get be, more leaves than you can probably. You'd have to bury use. your yard. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and I've and done, it would do that naturally. That, They'd be well, happy to do that naturally. Yeah, think about this. I mean, that's what they would do is just fall down and go back into the soil. Right. If you can possibly do that, or if it's a smaller leaf type and you can mow it into your lawn, which literally works, is mowing over the leaves. You know, more than one pass, but mow it in, let it compost naturally. So much the better. It, it's frustrating to me that so much leaf debris goes from yards away because yeah. then you know I'm perfectly happy to sell you bags of organic material to add to your soil but why am I doing that when it is just falling from the sky literally and you could be making use of that not everyone has a place for an actual formal compost pile but if there's any bare soil there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking leaves and piling them up on it and letting them disintegrate in a normal rainfall season my own experience is even mm-hmm. a very thick layer of even leaves like sycamores will disintegrate yeah. In a normal rainfall season, at the end of the season, you know, I take them and spread them out on my vegetable garden, areas that I'm not mm-hmm. planting this this time of year. I never have as big a winter garden as summer garden. So spread all the leaves out there. You go out in April to, to start planting your tomatoes. Uh, most of it will have just disintegrated, and you'll find worms and all kinds of beneficial things in there. So if you can possibly do that, so much the better. But I realize that that's not a real practical solution. So if you've so, got opinions, give them to the city. So the, the thing that I'm hearing Don saying is... But let's not put our leaves in the street. But, you know, when you cut those branches, they got to go someplace. Yeah, I mean, I will And pile... the tub that he's talking about oh, yeah. is actually the, the, four, the third bin. Uh, in Davis, we have three bins. We have <laughs> so one that goes to the <laughs> landfill. Then yeah. we have a double one. One side is for paper and the other side is for plastic and metal. And then the fourth one is what they call the compostables bin. And that's where your... Um, your household garbage that is, you know, like pizza boxes, something that is food contaminated paper or the leaves or the the prunings or whatever goes in this this thing. It's larger than the other bins. It's, it's quite nice. Okay. But at times, if you've pruned a lot, it's not going to fit. If you're a gardener and with any degree. So when of, I, yeah. sometimes when I have, you know, taken out a bush or something, I talk to my neighbors. Is your, is your compost <laughs> bin from bins from your neighbors. And yeah. so we just distribute it, you know, that's, and then they good. can use mine if they, if they, can, they need. But that's the biggest problem is the, the pruning. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think people should be putting leaves out well, they do because they, they do because they don't. I mean, as I say, a small lot, large tree, that's just what ends up yeah. happening. And that's or fine. if you're yeah. not taking care of your yard, you're hiring someone to yeah. do it. They take yeah. them away. So I know okay. that one, I know the one of the council persons now knows about our podcast. So I'm not going to say his or her name because that could violate the Brown Act <laughs> if too many of them are listening. So I'm just going to say, there, you got the feedback. I just spoke for about 20 people there. Yep. Council person. Yep. Um, now, I want to change the subject drastically and get to what we're doing. Well, I'm not drastically. We're talking about pruning. So we were talking about pruning, and it is time to prune. And I gave you some notes. But one thing I want to mention about pruning, the last two shows, the podcast, were about fruit trees. I did go into pruning in some degree there. But I just want to remind you all, if you're pruning your fruit trees, that there are two types that we don't prune now in the winter and the rainy season. The two types of fruit trees we do not prune in the rainy season are apricots and you're good. You're doing this great. Uh, um, cherries. Citrus. Cherries. Oh, well, citrus too, but they're not deciduous. So, oh, they're, oh, deciduous trees. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I said that. Um, yeah, apricots and cherries should not be pruned in the rainy season because they are each susceptible to a particular disease that can attack them through the pruning wounds. So this is fairly new recommendation. If you're reading old pruning books or going to seminars where this hasn't yet you know, permeated through to the speaker, just be aware of this, that uh, we have a, a botryosphyria or bot rot, as they call it, that 
can attack cherries, and eutypa, which is a fungus that can attack apricots, and they do attack through open pruning wounds. And so, they need moisture. And they have to have moisture, right. So yeah. we, we prune those only in late summer. I know that goes counter to old books on the subject and any training you might have had if you're my age or older, uh, that you do all your pruning in the wintertime. Well, first of all, we do a lot of pruning in the summer, but we only prune apricots, and cherries in the late summer, well ahead of the rainy season, so mm-hmm. those pruning cuts have a chance to heal over. The rest of your pruning, this is a great time to do structural pruning work on your fruit trees, but I don't recommend pruning citrus, good you know, good example there, because if we do get another frosty night, if we got to 28 degrees and you had just pruned your citrus, that open cut becomes an avenue for cold damage to go further into the stem than it would mm-hmm. otherwise. The more you leave on a citrus here, the better, especially when we're in the middle of January, when we have our highest risk of the lowest temperatures. I'm going to add on to your uh, prune it in the summer and then don't spray it with water. Um, I would be less less concerned about that just because things will dry up so quickly. So Mm -hmm. most fungus, that's actually a very important point with diseases, they all have a particular range Mm -hmm. of temperature and moisture, either humidity or actual literal moisture on the leaf or the stem that they need in order to infect. And we are so dry in the summer that I'd be unconcerned about that in most instances mm-hmm. because if you if you cut something and wash it with water, it's dried off in an hour or less. Right, that's And most, true. most fungal organisms take longer than that. And that's an important thing to know about like rose diseases and things like that. They require a fair period of moisture on the leaf. That's why, you know, we get them at certain times of year and not at other times of year here in the valley. And, and that's why hosing them off doesn't do damage. Doesn't harm. Yeah, it dries off so quickly. We can wash things off any time. Now, if we were in, say, September and it was cloudy and you, over, and you watered the tree or sprayed it for some reason, I suppose there could be a risk. But for the most part, September, which is when we would do a lot of that pruning, is so dry here that that shouldn't mm-hmm. be an issue. So, good. Um, when, it's, when it's already cold and wet and rainy. Yes. Like it is now. Yes. Um, it will be hosing, hosing off your roses doesn't add doesn't any hurt, hurt, difficulty, hurt or help. does no, it? No, and roses are a good topic for a pruning topic that we will get into in just a moment, actually. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I think I So yeah. why should people prune? I mean, it's not that the tree needs pruning. It's that people need to prune the tree. People, people feel the need to prune the tree. Yeah. We're pruning our goals as home gardeners. We're pruning for size control so we can walk up and pick the fruit easily. And so Keep that we short. can reduce the amount of fruit. And whenever I say that, when I'm giving a talk, I always <gasps> jump in. That's counterintuitive, right? <laughs> we want as many peaches as we can possibly get. Did you know that a mature peach tree can produce, I believe it's about 2,000 fruit and that the ripening... But sm- they're small. Band, well, no, that's full size. I mean, that, go, go drive through someday the, no. the peach orchards in Modesto. Mm-hmm. And they'll be the trees are 15 to 20 feet tall and across. They're propped up with two-by-fours, and there's a 1,000 or more fruit hanging on there, full size. Big, beautiful fruit. Branches, of course, would split if they weren't carefully supporting them, and they're pruning them very carefully. You don't want that many peaches. You'd be... Sub- I'd that's because sub- they all ripen at once, and right. what the heck are you going to do? All right. You've got seven days, you know, at best, maybe five. And and so what are you going to do? I would say most you of you cannon. probably eat 50 or mm-hmm. 100 if you're really well, ambitious. And so we prune to reduce the total number of fruit on the tree. Now, I've also heard that if you have the same size small tree and you let it get lots of fruit, that you'll have smaller fruit right. than if you thin it out and just have a few bigger fruit. Is yes, that it, true? Yes. If you let them all set and develop, they will not develop as big. They'll be perfectly good flavor, but they won't be as big. And so one of the other things you do when you're allowing your tree to grow to its full potential is you let everything set, and then you spend 
I have no idea how long it takes because I've never actually Hours. done it. Go in there and you thin out you know, all, enough so that the old rule of thumb was you don't want the peaches to be a fist distance apart down the branch, which means you're taking out half of them by hand. At least. Uh, if you prune harder, you won't have to do that. And mm-hmm. so we said we prune primarily. First reason is for size control. Second reason is to reduce fruit total fruit production and get better quality. And that's the main thing is we want a smaller amount of better fruit. And the third reason we prune is for the structural integrity of the tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, any larger fruit, a peach weighs three quarters of a pound or so, and you've got hundreds of them on there. They're all down the branch. And if as they're ripening, that weight is increasing and increasing. And you keep thinking, oh, it's going to be a great harvest. And that last push of moisture in there that gets it to the last size is the laws of physics kick in and that branch breaks. And it then just, you, just rips down. It tears, it breaks wrong. It, yeah. It's uh, usually, good news, there's usually enough cambium still intact that you can wait to harvest before you have to cut the whole thing off, but not always. And that's often the beginning of the end for a peach tree or a nectarine tree because they... they then it has open wounds. It's, it's open and suddenly sunlight gets to the interior wood, which has not been exposed to it before. So you get sunburn on the interior and borers are attracted to that. I would say what shortens the lifespan of peaches and nectarines more than any other single thing is limb breakage mm-hmm. because it breaks poorly, it tears, and then suddenly you have branches exposed to sunburn. So, so, so when we're pruning, we should not only look at the size of the overall size of the tree, but how long each branch is unsupported. Right, or would be with fruit on it. And, and yeah. so, and so if it's longer than my arm, mm-hmm. I'm going to have trouble. If it's longer than four to five feet, you're definitely going to have trouble. Yeah. And so we prune hard to reduce the size and to improve the structure and help it hold the fruit better. Even still, you may need to do some thinning. But I try and keep all of my peaches, plums, nectarines, pluots under 10 feet. I'm trying to keep them all under eight feet. Mm-hmm. That means in the summer, I go along and shorten them up. If I get that done, great. I didn't get it done on a lot of them this year, so I'll go in and do that now. Mm-hmm. But what I like about summer pruning, it is kind of a new concept, and I think we've talked about this on some of the repeat shows you listen to over the holidays is that you can do a lot of work then when it's the ground is dry and stable and not slippery and the temperatures are whatever time of day you choose to be it's not cold and miserable out there you can go out in the morning in august and do this or you can wait till the end of the day you can do a little bit at a time and you can just bring them all down and anybody can do it it doesn't require tree service or as you know you don't have to cut to an interior branch or something none of that you can just you just shorten it up like a hedge and then in the winter when it's dormant then you can look at it and go, oh, those branches are too close together and spend some time thinning them out. But a lot of times you'll find if you do pretty good pruning in the summer, you don't need to do much in the winter. And that's, that's certainly a more pleasant time to be out there. And I've had my son and his friends who want to help on the property do it for me, and they do a fine job. You know, they were really worried about it the first time, like they weren't going to prune right. I said, don't worry, there is no wrong in this part. Winter, sure. January, I'll, I'll show you what I'm doing and why. Right now, I just want you to reach up there. You're six feet tall. Here's some 18-inch loppers. Prune what you can reach and bring it down like a hedge, and then I'll go in and clean it up later. If you do it in August, um, the plant has done its growth for the year, mm-hmm. and so it's not going to re-sprout at that point. Right. And you're just shortening it up. This goes against what you learned when you studied plant physiology because you're removing leaves and you're therefore stunting the plant. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do <laughs> is stunt said, the plant. Size control is one of yeah. our main purposes. So. Yeah. Um, and then that brings us to another pruning topic, which... Uh, okay, well, before, before, we, before yeah. we do this, here I am. I've pruned my, my plum tree, my peach tree. Yep. Um, 
what do I do with all the branches? Do I should leave them lie there? Do I have to worry about them? You should take do them I away. Take... You should what put about them out, the leaves? Put them out in the street for, <laughs> for the city to pick up if you live in Davis. On your monthly or pickup cut day. them down and yeah. put them into your dumpster. Uh, they should go away, and the leaves on the ground should be raked up. Because we, we don't have if very effective disease control products anymore for the basic diseases the fruit trees get, we all do still sell copper sprays, but they're way more dilute than they used to be. Um, so things like peach leaf curl, uh, particularly shot hole fungus, they're on the ground in the stems and leaves that are lying there. And so mm. basic principle of orchard management is clean orchard floor. Clear that all out. Get all those leaves up if you possibly can. Don't be you know too obsessive about this. But the more you get to take away, the better. Uh, it'll what help about reduce. plums? Do they have that? There's shot hole fungus, so they can mm. get it. They can get brown rot. So the general principle is to pick everything up and take it away and, uh, and get the leaves out of there if you possibly can. Many people do a dormant spray for peach leaf curl for diseases on the plums like shot hole, things like that. That's the copper spray. There's more Again, they're more dilute than they used to be, so they're not as effective as they used to be, but it is part of the whole process that people generally do in the winter. Cut it all down, haul that all away, rake everything up, spray the tree very thoroughly with the copper. If you want to skip that part, there are disease problems that will increase if you don't, but I guarantee you'll still get plenty of good fruit. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other topic perhaps for another day. Okay. And, oh, below the pen, please. KDRT hosts many pop-up live music events, loosely categorized under the moniker Live Dirt, but there's only one Live Dirt event that you can plan on each and every month. KDRT live from Armadillo Music for the Downtown Davis Second Friday Art About. Every month, KDRT co-presents live music and interviews from the Armadillo stage. Mark your calendars, spend your Art About with Armadillo Music and KDRT live from Downtown Davis every Second Friday. And then I want to do an announcement about the Davis Senior Center, but... It's going to be a special one because January is a month in which Lois is very, very active. I told you already about those three bird things I'm doing. Turns out I'm also doing some art stuff. So on January 22nd, I will be doing a free presentation at the Senior Center if people want to learn how to do swiped acrylics. And if you want to know what the heck that is, I have my art up as a show for the month of January. So So at the Davis Senior Center corner of 7th and A, and you can look at all my beautiful paintings and then uh, come to class if you want and, and join in and learn how to do it. Okay. All right, there you go. So I wrote a column last month about plant breeders. And then I was getting ready to write a column about how to prune roses because I was getting kind of fed up with the lists of rules for pruning roses and I want to make it simple. A few years ago, I think I said on a radio show here that I've got a very simple step-by-step process for how to prune roses. I remember that. Yep. Okay. You take, uh, this is assuming that it's a tall rose that needs pruning. You take the rose and you whack it in half, but you have your son do it so you don't have to deal with that. (laughs) That's right. Okay. (laughs) And then then you, and then later. Unfortunately, he's outgrown this now, but yeah. And then you later, you look at it and you see if if it's got too much stuff in it. And if it does, you you take out some of the stuff. And if it's got any dead sticks in it, you take out the dead sticks. And then you look and see if. Um, oh, and then you clean up all the the, the tritus, the leaves and stuff, yeah, so that can, that yeah. the the um, for fungus the fun- fungus is is reduced and. Yeah. That's it. Cut it in half, thin it out. That's my two-step process for pruning roses. And uh, part of this is my reaction to the increasingly detailed lists of how to prune roses and all this kind of thing that you'll find. Well, I started to write this article, and then we got the news that David Austin had died. David Austin, 93-year-old breeder of the David Austin roses, what we all call them, English roses, the category that he created. He's one I had mentioned in my November column. So if you want to 
read an appreciation I wrote about David Austin. Uh, it's in the January first week of January Davis Enterprise, and I'll have it linked on my web page as well. Uh, because he was phenomenal. I mean, this man was an amazing reader, and he did something. He created a whole new category of roses. I brought over the catalog, and Lois is thumbing through it over there. Looking this at all is these the most beautiful book I've seen. <laughs> and, and, and Don handed it to me and said, and this is a catalog? Yeah. No, this, no. This, this is, is a reference this book. This is a beautiful book. I mean, it's like 180 pages of stuff. And in the very back is my favorite part. It has an indexed by color yeah. uh, for selected roses. So you can see what the rose looks like. And you can pick, oh, I like that shade of pink, or right. ooh, there's one that's candy-striped, or oh, I like this Well, what's amazing about one. Austin is that um, it's amazing. Uh, this actually tied in very well with my pruning discussion. So believe it or not, this is all going to work together here. Uh, if you look at his catalog, and this is a very typical one, it shows roses in the garden. And now his gardens are unbelievable, and someday I'm going to get to the U.K. and I'm going to go visit the David Austin gardens if I can. He was in Shropshire, England. I believe that's where his, his these amazing gardens are. But it shows these big plants, and it shows them blooming in clusters, and it shows chickens walking around in the garden. It shows pathways and cottage roof lines, and there's one online where they have a pheasant strolling, or not a pheasant, a peacock strolling through the, the rose garden. In other words, they have them in containers, they have them in wheelbarrows. It shows them being used. And right. my biggest objection to the rose catalogs that I would get from the companies from whom I have purchased wholesale roses in the past was that all the pictures looked like perfect portraitures or mug shots. Because mm-hmm. I mean, they just only show you the flower. The flower, right. Just this flower with a backdrop and showing you how absolutely perfect it is. And that was a big part of the problem. And I go into this in some detail in the, in the article that we created this, this expectation. The roses are going to be picture perfect and they're all going to look like something you would cut and bring in the house. And I think if you asked 100 people, one, do you like roses? 99 of them would say, absolutely, I love roses. And then if you ask them, what would you like to do if you happen to be a gardener? What would you do with roses? Oh, I just like having them. I think maybe 5 or 10% might say, oh, I want them to them cut aside. them and bring them into the house yeah. and put them in a vase. Yes, that's something we do with them. But you want to walk past them on yeah. your way into the house and smell that wonderful smell and smile because I'm home. And you look at his catalog and you, you want to walk on those paths and look oh, at yeah. those roses. And, of course, one of the things he was really breeding for always was fragrance. He, mm-hmm. he crossed 19th century and 18th century heirloom roses with modern roses to get the mm-hmm. fragrance of the old ones on a nice, tight-growing plant. So they have that old-fashioned look and there's big clusters of blooms. So I was curious about how he would describe pruning roses versus your typical American Rose Society checklist. And so I went online, I found all kinds of you know, lists for how to prune roses. And one, one sentence really jumped out at me from one of those. I, I, my description of them is that they ranged from uh, misguided to just plain insufferable. But one of them was said, quote, by far the most important technique to master in pruning roses is the correct angle and direction of the primary cut. The final <laughs> pruning cut should be made at approximately a 45-degree angle, about one-quarter inch above a leaf axle where there is a dormant eye, end quote. You've just lost 80% well, of your audience right there because you make it sound complicated and fussy. Like well, you, you know, if, if folks could watch the old TV show that I did, I had a, a rose... Gardener, right. come on, and he he showed us pruning roses. Mm-hmm. Now, if you didn't write that down, <laughs> but you just looked at it and say, "Ooh, there's a bud, and it's pointed to the outside. Let's choose that one, and we'll cut it right there. Yeah, Click, sure. you're done." Now that you could understand because you could see it, and that's fine. But it's not that crucial. No. Nope. Okay. So I I went and found an old uh, article from 1992. 
the president of the Royal National Rose Society uh, published an uh, article in the American Rose, August 1992, which described some trials of pruning underway at the St. Albans Rose Gardens of three different pruning techniques. One is what they call the traditional pruning method, which is where you select five to six canes, you thin it out, you cut to a, at a 45-degree angle to a bud play, pointing to the outside. All the checklist of stuff you'll find on any American Rose Society website, which mm-hmm. I have done and showed people, shown people how to do. It leads to a nicely balanced plant with an open interior and mm-hmm. long stem cutting roses. A urn shape. Is ur, the, ur, a urn, urn, vase shape, yes. Yeah. So they call that and they capitalize it. The traditional pruning method because in okay. the UK they capitalize important things. So careful cane selection cut this way. The next group they did what they called the rough pruning method. I've done this many times. Just cut them in half. Okay, just cut them in half. No concern was given to where the cuts were made. They were just horizontal. They didn't worry about angling them. They didn't worry about whether there was a bud there, any of that. And the bushes were pruned to about the same height all across the bed. All of them pruned about the same, like you might do a hedge. Well, the third technique was called the hedge trimmer pruning method. And in this one, they were just cut in half with hedge shears. And I'm talking about power well, those hedge shears. Those things that fissurated. That <laughs> yeah, those things. Yeah. Okay, so the hedge trimmer cuts, he says, quote, were very ragged. Well, leaving, they, they sort of shred the stem as they go. Yeah, lots of snagged and ripped shoots, end quote. And I can just imagine... After the they did this, of the rosarians, these yes. august English rosarians walking down the path, and oh my goodness, what have they done here? Okay, so then they monitored them to see how they grew and how they bloomed. Those pruned by the rough pruning and hedge trimmer pruning methods were more vigorous, <laughs> stronger growth, and equally good, or in many cases, better flowering performance than the traditional pruning ones. Don is just sitting here gloating. (laughs) What? He's just gloating. How can this be? Well, I'll tell you how. They left more growing points. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really what it comes down to. I have roses on my property that don't get pruned. They're just big old shrub roses. Mm -hmm. They bloom like crazy. There's a lot of deadwood on the interior. So one of the points he makes is that they did remove dead and diseased wood when they could on the first two methods. They didn't do that with the hedge trimmer method. Mm -hmm. They just like went at them with hedge shears. I've seen this. I mean, I've seen gardeners do this. And of course, the homeowners are horrified when they do it. So when we would prune for people, needless to say, we weren't going to attack them with hedge trimmers. But we would start with the method I mentioned, cut them in half, Mm -hmm. and then we'd thin them out. They didn't even thin them out after they cut them in half. If you ever watched, those of you in Davis, if you ever drive from Mm -hmm. roughly where we are, into South Davis on the overpass. The overpass, yeah. There's a a rose along there they planted 25 years ago called Bonica, which is one of the Meadowland series of roses from Meadowland of France. It's a landscape rose, one of the first that ever won an American Rose Society award. I've watched the landscape crews from the city prune those because they're working in the middle of a busy street. That's right. They take head shears and they move as fast as they can. And they just mm-hmm. mound them off into little balls as if they were boxwood plants. They've mm-hmm. been doing that now for well over a decade. And they look just fine. Mm-hmm. Because they leave many growing points, you get more bloom. If you want bigger blooms that are more perfect on longer stems for cutting and bringing into the house, if that's important to you, I strongly recommend you follow the traditional Rose Society method of careful right. selection, interior thinning, cutting to an outside bud, and so on. That probably has some effect on disease issues in areas where it rains in the summer. I doubt if it makes any difference here in the valley, but keeping a more open plant would help perhaps to reduce infection of black uh, spot and shot hole uh, and uh, mildew and things like that. I doubt it does here because we're so dry, but it may be in the UK or 
so, Portland, Oregon, or Louisiana, or places like that, it might make some difference. But in terms of total number of blooms and stuff, uh, it looks like you can do it pretty much any which way you want. Go ahead. So the the shot hole fungus and the, the I, other I things mean, that you mentioned. I meant to say um, black, black spot. spot. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So uh, those things, are those things which are cosmetic or are they things which will actually kill the plant? Here they're cosmetic. Okay, and, so yeah. since they're cosmetic, yep. um, it doesn't matter if they have them on that intersection. I mean, I'm there all the time. I've I'm coming noticed. from South Davis. Yeah. I come in. Yep. You park at the stop at the left turn lane, and there they are, right next to you. Yep. And they're f- totally covered with flowers. You don't see anything, and, yep. and you're not close enough to get up to them. I mean, if you roll your window down, you'll smell them. Yeah. M- mild. Yeah. Um, Along with the car fumes, those yeah. poor plants put up so, quite a bit. It's, but it's amazing. So they, it's amazing. I've, you know, I've often done this this rough pruning method, and I do think it's something you can certainly do yourself. If you're in a hurry, it's important to reduce the size if that's one of your goals. But this really comes into to the main point. First of all, I hope they continued the studies, but unfortunately, I find no evidence that they did. And actually, the uh, the Royal Society, uh, what is it, the Royal. Uh, Royal National Rose Society went bankrupt two years ago, so no longer exists, and they closed the gardens at St. Albans, so we can't oh, even follow up on this that's now. That's too bad. Yeah, due to falling membership and revenues, because roses, folks, aren't selling like they used to. And so this is a factor, is that we want people to understand they're not as hard to grow as you yeah, thought. They're they not as fussy. fussy. You don't have to do all that stuff. It's the same thing as African violets. It's grow African violets, they're easy. Okay. So what does David Austin so, tell uh, us about pruning? He, he in on his website, I'm going to assume it's him. It might be his son. His you know, have, The family's been running the place in, in, in later years. He says that your purpose of pruning, and I want you all to internalizes is simply to create a shapely, attractive shrub with good structure, okay? Just to make the plant look good. It encourages fresh new growth, so that's good. So in the first year, he just has you cut them back three to five inches, just very light pruning all around. Anything that's sticking way out, shorten it up a little bit more. Year two, you cut everything back by a third. In other words, you're trying to get the plant pretty uniform all around. Anything that's sticking extra long, make sure it's about the same length as the others. Year three and thereafter, I love this, cut back by less than one-third, or by one-third, or by as much as half, or more if you like. It's your (laughs) rose. It just depends on how big you want your rose bush to be. And, okay. and which rose you have, too. I'm I going mean, to say no. So, I'm well, going to say I, no to that because uh, because that then you're going to get into the complexities of this variety needs this and this variety needs this and so on well, and so okay. forth. okay. So, so you're saying percentage is not inches. Yes. So that's okay. Yeah, there you go. That's but I'm, I'm just thinking I've, got, I've seen some little tiny little miniature rose bushes that even if they grew as big as they could possibly grow, they wouldn't be more than knee high. The reason that's a very good example is that I found that description of the pruning technique first in a book about miniature roses from the okay. 1990s. And, and I, was, I was trying to write about how to prune roses. And I had a bunch of miniatures back then. And, you know, I would go in and I'd try to find canes. Well, they don't have them. That's not their parentage. Mm-hmm. I'd try to thin them out. I might as well use tweezers. I mean, there's, how are you going to so get small. in there? <laughs> thin them out? And so what I took to doing was shearing them most years and then every now and then cutting them really hard to about three inches from the ground and sacrificing a lot of bloom just to rejuvenate the plant. And that, it turns out, is actually an approved method by miniature rose growers mm. is the alternating between light pruning and hard pruning. And that was where I first came across this description. That should work for so all, it, all it's roses, a percentage. If you think of it as a percentage, when I said cut it back by a third. Yeah, that, that's or half good. That's or more. Good. You know, that makes sense. Percentage. Yeah. Now, and it does, doesn't he, apply to climbing roses, though, right? We, we prune them very lightly, and we generally yeah. prune them to just for shape and to keep them on the structure that they're on, mm-hmm. so they're not going all over the place. Now, that's such a variable group. I'd actually like to talk about climbing roses more in a subsequent show, because you can do them wrong 
if you have older types and prune them too hard, you'll really cut into your bloom production. So I think we should try to remind me to talk okay. about some of the Put unusual it on roses for the that spring. way. He does recommend removing any dead, dying, damaged, and diseased stems, or what he calls the, the four Ds. And I love this quote. Don't worry about where you cut a stem. Accepted wisdom suggests cutting just above a leaf joint with a sloping cut away from the bud. However, says David Austin, there is no evidence to prove this is necessary. <laughs> Don't worry about cutting back too much. Roses are extremely strong and will grow back even if you cut all of the stems right back to the base, end quote. Okay, don't worry so much about it. They'll grow back and bloom. And the example I started with when I was a teenager, uh, first learning how to prune roses, my grandfather was an engineer, cut roses to 42-inch height. Exactly. And that was he what took he a did. measuring stick uh, to he, it. He had a stick, actually. So he, he wasn't a measuring stick, but he, I cut him to this height. And he cut to an outside bud, and he did everything. And he did that because grandmother was five foot four, mm -hmm. and that would mean <laughs> they were blooming at her nose height yep. once they came back. Yep. My neighbors down the street in San Diego who were very avid about their roses and liked to cut them and bring them in the house cut them back to 16 inches. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I helped them in their garden periodically, and I was aghast. You know, my grandfather does this, and he knows what he's talking about. These people do this, and they know what they're they talking different about. different goals, and how huh? can they, how It's can a they, different goal. How can they have different rules for pruning roses when, you know, there's supposed to be just one rule for pruning roses? No. So you're going to get this complex checklist. It may include things like uh, putting sealant on the ends of the stems, uh, Elmer's glue is something the American Rose Society often recommends. I've done it. I asked the preeminent rosarian in Sacramento once why she mentioned that. And she said, you know, Don, I never used to do that, never used to recommend it. But then some people told me that they had problems with twig nesting borers, which are a type of benign borer that gets into the open cane and tunnels in there just to make their nest in there. And it traps moisture, which can sometimes cause the cane to die back. And if you put some Elmer's glue on it, they can't do that. And she thought, what does it hurt? All right. Does it help? Well, Maybe. A, it's one yeah. of those, you know, is it harmful? It's Probably better, not. It's, it's more important to the person than the plant. I think so. And then, of course, the picking all the leaves off. Well, that's great. If you can, the purpose of that is to remove overwintering fungus spores. You know, on a because uh, in Davis we don't get totally dormant. Right, they don't exactly. They don't completely drop their leaves, yeah. and so this is one of the rare cases where a leaf blower is actually a handy thing in the garden. Is just go through the whole garden with one of those after you're mm -hmm. done. I will also make a point of discussing rose diseases on maybe the same show where we talk about climbing roses because my opinion, the short answer is the way to reduce disease problems on your roses is to space them further apart. Mm -hmm. So there's more air and more sunlight on the individual bush. That'll reduce them in our area to the point where there's no need for spraying. Right. And I'd never spray my roses for you anything. You can hose them off if you get a problem. Right. You can wash them off if yeah. necessary, and, and they'll dry out because they're not all crowded together. Right. And so we'll get into that in more detail, trying to, trying to bring roses back perhaps into public perception of something nice to have in the garden. Look at David Austin's website. Look at his pictures. Look at the catalog. You'll suddenly find yourself wanting to plant roses again. And well, the biggest problem I have is I had roses, but yep. then everything grew up and I now have I have shade. And there's people listening to us. I know we have a listener in Compchi over by the coast. Well, you know, there's a rose for every area. That's right. The problem is everybody tries to grow their favorites everywhere. And I was over at the Mendocino Coast Botanical Gardens in Fort Bragg, where the temperature range is 56 to 64 degrees year round, and it's always foggy. That's that's the high. If, it, if the sun comes, yeah, it's also the, also the low, I think. And the low is in the, is <laughs> in the 50s. 50s. And the sun yeah. comes out, they think they're having a heat wave, and they all get freaked out. And they had a rose garden there, which is honestly pretty feeble. But there are a couple of roses in it doing great mm -hmm. because there are some like the noisettes you ever heard of them 
do great in coastal areas. So we'll talk about roses that are suitable to different climates as well, because I do, I do think people need to get at least so that you believe this. And when you're walking through a rose garden, you think maybe I could do this at home. Uh, there are roses you can grow almost anywhere. And no, you don't absolutely have to spray them and treat for diseases and pest problems. Okay. I want to say Kew Gardens, which is a single rose in a large loose bunches. You want one of those? And <laughs> Sentimental, spelled S-C-E-N-T, which is a very strongly flavored striped red and white rose. They're beautiful. And if you've got a lot of shade, we'll figure out, in your case, for example, uh, we mentioned the noisettes. I would think the hybrid musk roses would be appropriate for you as well. We'll check that we'll out. We'll just talk about that another time. What's coming up on your show real quick? Oh, I've got, I'm going to talk about birds. birds. I've got, um, well, it seemed appropriate since this mm-hmm. is a, a bird talk. And uh, Mary Sheets coming, who's our one of our local experts. So okay. it ought to be a good show. All right. Uh, you've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. Parthenocarpic, parthenocarpic fruit, which forms without fertilization of the ovules. The fruit is seedless, and most home garden varieties of figs set parthenocarpically. Uh, mulberries are parthenocarpic. So if you're growing a mulberry for fruit, you're planting a female mulberry, it sets fruit without needing the pollen of the male nearby. So you don't have to put up with the wind-blown pollen of a male mulberry in order to get fruit, at least not on the ones that I looked up, white, black, or Pakistani mulberries. Those are setting fruit parthenocarpically without cross-pollination. And as I mentioned, pears are described as self-fruitful with often simply setting fruit without pollination. Uh, in many cases, that is parthenocarpic fruit that they're setting. Uh, there are some sprays you'll read about for fruit set, which are done commercially, but they're not really relevant to homeowners. So that's pollination and pollinization. Easy thing to remember. How to remember to keep the terms separated in your mind. Someone said this to me years ago. Pollinizers doesn't buzz. So the pollinizer is not the bee. The pollinizer is the other tree. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show. Thanks for listening. I see trees of green Red roses too I see them bloom 